everyone. Welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal here on Iris. This is Andy back with you for a second time this afternoon with this reading of the Sioux City Journal. Taking a look at some of the headlines here for this Friday, March 10th edition. Biden rolls out budget plan, challenges GOP. No pay, no problem. Wayne State wrestling coach shares love of sport. Also, South Dakota to cut sales tax. The cuts will sunset in four years. Hopefully they keep those around. Oh, good old South Dakota, keeping things freer all the time. Before we get into these uh, stories, full blast here, let's take a check of the forecast for Sioux City and the northwest Iowa area. Well, you can expect for the rest of this afternoon, cloudy conditions, a high of 38 degrees. Mild winds out of the east and southeast up to 10 miles per hour. For tonight, expect cloudy conditions to continue with winds out of the east gusting as high as 30 miles per hour, the east and southeast, I should say, and a low around 31 degrees for your overnight. Saturday, the weather begins. Snow and sleet, possibly mixed with rain, becoming all rain after 1 p.m. Winds coming from the southeast during the afternoon, gusting as high as 30 miles per hour. 100% chance of precipitation, but uh, new snow and sleet accumulation of less than one inch possible for Saturday. A high of 37 degrees Saturday in Sioux City. Saturday night, partly cloudy with low around 23. Sunday, pa- Sunday, patchy, blowing snow after 9 a.m., increasing clouds with a high near 30. And those winds gusting out of the northwest as high as 35 miles per hour. So hang on to your hat. Sunday night, patchy, blowing snow before 2 a.m., then patchy, blowing snow after 5 a.m. Mostly cloudy, a low around 18. Monday, expect patchy, blowing snow before 7 a.m., the high near 29. And mostly sunny conditions. Monday night, mostly clear, a low around 14. Tuesday, mostly sunny, a high near 44. Wednesday, mostly cloudy, a high near 54. Warming back up through the week as we approach St. Patrick's Day. With next Thursday, a chance of rain, partly sunny conditions, a high near 41. But again, for this afternoon, for your Friday, before we get too ahead of ourselves here, cloudy with a high near 38. And this is your reading of the Sioux City Journal here on Iris. Starting off with our headline story at the top. Biden rolls out budget plan, challenges GOP. This is a national story written by Darlene Superville and Josh Boak of the Associated Press, Dateline, Philadelphia. As political gridlock puts the government at risk of defaulting, Joe Biden on Thursday made an opening bid with a budget plan that would cut deficits by $2.9 trillion over the next decade, a proposal Republicans already intend to reject. It's part of the broader attempt to call out House Republicans who are demanding severe cuts in spending in return for lifting the government's legal borrowing limit. The GOP has no counteroffer so far other than a flat no to a Biden blueprint with tax increases on the wealthy that could form the policy backbone of Biden's yet-to-be-declared campaign for re-election in 2024. Striding around a stage at a union training center in Philadelphia, Biden spoke about his plan for the government's finances and how his values contrast with Republican priorities. I just laid out the bulk of my budget, Biden said. Republicans in Congress should do the same thing. Then we can sit down and see where we disagree. Yet he doubted GOP lawmakers could make their numbers match their calls for a balanced budget, and he suggested efforts to do so come at the expense of middle-class families. How are they going to make the math work, Biden said. What are they going to cut? 
As proposed, Biden's package of tax and spending priorities is unlikely to pass the GOP-run House or the Senate, where Democrats hold a slim edge. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, said Biden's proposed deficit reduction was inadequate. It just seems like it's going to create the biggest government in history. I don't think that's what we need at this time, he said. Biden's 10-year budget largely revolves around taxing the wealthy to help fund programs for the middle class, older adults, and families. It would raise $4.7 trillion from higher taxes with an additional $800 billion in savings from changes to programs. The tax increases include a reversal of the 2017 tax cuts made by President Donald Trump on people earning more than $400,000 a year. Biden floated a new 25% minimum tax on households worth $100 million or more. Also, the tax that companies pay on stock buybacks would raise, rise fourfold, and those earning more than $400,000 would pay an additional Medicare tax that would help to keep the program solvent beyond the year 2050. Medicare could negotiate on the prices of more prescription drugs, helping to save the government money. Accompanying that would be $2.6 trillion worth of new spending, including the restoration of the expanded child tax credit that would give families as much as $3,600 per child, compared with the current level of $2,000. That credit would be fully refundable, which means households could receive all of that sum even if they don't owe any taxes. The budget proposal would help impose a $35 a month cap on insulin prices, matching a change Biden already put in place for Medicare recipients. At a time of increased tensions with Russia and China, the budget shows a decline in military spending as a share of the U.S. economy over the next decade. But federal spending would be equal to roughly one quarter of economic output as the spending on Social Security and Medicare climbs, essentially keeping the government the same size as it is currently. The budget would seek to close the carried interest loophole that allows wealthy hedge fund managers and others to pay taxes at a lower rate and prevent billionaires from being able to set aside large amounts of their holdings in tax-favored retirement accounts. The plan also projects saving $24 billion over 10 years by removing a tax subsidy for cryptocurrency transactions. By refusing to raise taxes or cut Social Security and Medicare spending, GOP lawmakers face some harsh math that makes it hard to reduce deficits without risking a voter backlash. McCarthy said his plan's release was pushed back because Biden's proposal was only now coming out. With the economy already in a fragile state because of high inflation, if Biden and Congress cannot agree to raise the statutory debt cap of $31.4 trillion by this summer, the government could default on payments and perhaps send the country into a recession. The budget also shows the shadow of Trump's legacy as provisions in his 2017 tax cuts will expire after 2025. Biden wants to eliminate elements of that overhaul, arguing that lower taxes failed to produce the growth Trump promised. But Biden's budget does not address tax cuts that benefited households making less than $400,000. Their expiration could amount to a tax increase that would violate a pledge by Biden to only raise taxes on the wealthy. The cost of extending the tax breaks for people making less than $400,000 would be $1.5 trillion, according to Kyle Pamerlou, a senior fellow at the center-right American Enterprise Institute that would have the deficit savings being promoted by Biden. But Pamerlou cautioned his estimates might be high because the plan includes the uh, Democrats' plan includes the cost of the expanded child tax credit. 
In February, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that the national debt held by the public will grow by more than $20 trillion over the next decade. Next up, headline, no pay, no problem. Wayne State wrestling coach shares love of sport. Dateline Wayne, Nebraska. Coaches and athletes who aren't big-time college programs get used to all the things they have to take care of on their own. Cleaning up after practice, putting equipment away, making travel arrangements. For much of Greg Vanderweel's time as director of Wayne State College's wrestling team, that's a fraction of his duties. How about driver, fundraiser, trainer, and at times coach? All for no pay. He wouldn't change a thing about the 15 years he's directed Wayne State's club wrestling program, a non-varsity program that receives little funding from the college, a small fraction compared to what the varsity sports such as football, volleyball, and basketball receive. I always said if you gave me a mat and a schedule, I could put a wrestling team together, said Vanderweel, who's been an industrial education teacher at Wayne State for 35 years and a wrestling fan for much longer. When a friend walked up to him at the College World Series in Omaha one summer and kind of jokingly said he'd heard a rumor Vanderweel was starting a wrestling program at Wayne State, Vanderweel thought, well, why not? The 1975 Sioux City East High graduate who wrestled a couple years at Wayne State decided in 2008 to resurrect wrestling, which had been discontinued as a varsity sport in 1981. Using social media and information booth when classes started and word of mouth, he recruited a dozen or so guys who'd wrestled in high school and wanted to give it another shot. They'd unroll an old mat and stage at Rice Auditorium, sometimes sharing the space with an aerobics class to practice. Wrestlers paid for their own uniforms and travel expenses to duels and tournaments, often getting there in a rented van Vanderweel drove himself. Now, 15 years later, Vanderweel still wears many hats, but it's time to take them off. He just turned 66 and will retire from teaching at the end of the school year. He'll also step down as the wrestling team's full-time director and coach. He'll still help here and there with fundraising and other duties, but he'll no longer maintain a daily presence with the program in order to spend more time with his wife, Zoe, whom he said has been supportive of all the extra time he spent away from home while developing the wrestling program. I've done it 15 years for free, he said. It's just time to do that retirement phase of life. His wrestlers understand, but that doesn't make it any easier knowing they won't see his smiling face at practice every day in the future. We're going to miss having him around. He's the reason I'm wrestling here, said sophomore Muhammad Sido, a 2021 South Sioux City graduate who wrestles at 157 pounds. Like many Wayne State wrestlers before him, Sido thought his wrestling career was over after high school. He had a few offers to wrestle in college, but chose to go to Wayne State because of its exercise science major. He knew about the team and stopped by Vanderwell's information booth during a club fair as he began his freshman year. He decided he wasn't done wrestling yet. A lot of these guys, they just want to stay on the mat, Vanderwiel said. He'll take anyone, regardless of their past experience or success. As years have passed, he's attracted more talented wrestlers, as evidenced by the team's growing success. All 14 of the team's wrestlers have qualified for this weekend's national tournament of the National Collegiate Wrestling Association, an organization made up of club teams that aren't varsity-level programs at their respective schools. Five previous Wayne State wrestlers have come home from the tournament with All-American honors. Rather than sharing a stage with an aerobics class, the team now shares a modern practice facility with Wayne's youth wrestling program. 
fundraising and sponsors pay many of the team's expenses so wrestlers no longer have to pay them out of their own pockets. Vanderwilt raises enough money to fund five $500 scholarships awarded to team members. He doesn't even get paid to coach. It's just for the love of the sport, Sido said. He treats us like his own kids. Yes, Vanderwill's been doing all this for free for the past 15 years, but the long-term relationships made through the years makes up for the absence of a salary. The teaching and coaching paycheck is the wedding announcements, the birth announcements, then coming back around, he said, of those relationships with former wrestlers, many of whom now coach in high school and send wrestlers to Wayne State. The team has a handful of part-time coaches and will need a new full-time director. There might not be any pay, but as Vanderwill will tell you, the benefits are outstanding and pay out for years. And the photo here shows uh, on page six, as the story follows on, Greg Vanderwill, director and coach at the Wayne State College Wrestling Club team, talking to team members during a recent practice. Everybody's on the map. The team's 14 wrestlers have qualified for this weekend's National Collegiate Wrestling Association's National Tournament made up of teams that don't have varsity status at their respective schools. Well, that's too bad. They need to get on that. Let them all be varsity, you know? What's, what do they got to lose? Well, anyway, that's just me. South Dakota to cut sales tax. The cuts will sunset in four years. This story by Amankai Barabin. Amankai, you spell it A-M-A-N-C-A-I. A-M-A-N-C-A-I, Biraben, B-I-R-A-B-E-N. It's Associated Press writer. It's Associated Press story. Dateline Pier, South Dakota. Or if I, I didn't say it right, it's Pier, South Dakota, not Pierre. Pier, South Dakota. South Dakota's Republican-dominated legislature passed a general sales tax cut of $104 million per year, lowering the taxes on groceries but not eliminating them entirely, as Governor Kristi Noem has urged. The cut that cleared both chambers Thursday reduces the state's overall sales tax from 4.5% to 4.2%. It has a four-year sunset clause and removes a mechanism known as the Partridge Amendment, which gradually reduced the state's sales tax as more money was collected from Internet sales. Tax cuts were high on the agenda as the state opened the session with a $423 million surplus. The Republican governor, who is seen as a potential contender for the 2024 presidential nomination, made repealing the grocery tax the centerpiece of her re-election campaign. South Dakota is one of a few states that tax groceries at the same rate as the general sales. Democrats had long supported the grocery tax cut. In fact, Democratic Senate leader Reynold Nesiba was only in support of cutting the food tax and hoped to retain the general sales tax to fund education, community support providers, and state employees. But that plan's tumultuous journey came to a final end on Tuesday after it was rejected a second time. The governor's prerogative is the governor's prerogative, Republican Representative Chris Carr said. All we can try to do is work with her. Lawmakers also toyed with property tax cuts designed to help retirees struggling with inflation, but ultimately opted for the general sales tax cut, favoring its general scope of relief. The debate then turned to how steeply the, to trim the sales tax, whether to put a time limit on it and how to address the Partridge Amendment. 
You make it a priority to cut taxes or you make it a priority to cut taxes exactly the way you want to. Republican House Leader Will Mortensen said, we're proud of the product we wound up with. All right, that takes care of everything on the front page of the Sioux City Journal. Moving on now to page A2, U of I Athletics to Reimburse Taxpayers. A story by Vanessa Miller of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, Dateline, Iowa City. University of Iowa Athletics will pay back the state for $2 million that taxpayers covered of a $4.2 million deal to settle a discrimination lawsuit 12 former football players filed against UI Athletics and its coaches. University of Iowa President Barbara Wilson said Thursday, I appreciate the work and due diligence of the Iowa Attorney General and State Appeal Board, Wilson said in a statement. After listening to the concerns of Iowans and in consultation with the Board of Regents leadership, I have determined that the University of Iowa Department of Athletics will reimburse the state general fund for the $2 million due to the recent settlement. I am deeply committed to our students' success and well-being on and off the field of play, she said. The State Appeal Board earlier this week agreed to settle the 2020 lawsuit and fund nearly half of the payout with taxpayer dollars from the state's general fund. UI covered the remaining $2.175 million. State Auditor Rob Sand voted against the settlement, saying he wouldn't support using taxpayer dollars so long as UI Athletic Director Gary Barta remained in charge, given UI Athletics has been involved in several other discrimination settlements in recent years. As far as contracts and salaries, UI President Wilson hasn't answered questions about Barta's employment and demands from the auditor he will be, re- he be removed. Barta, age 59, made $1.2 million in the 2022 budget year and is making an annual base wage of $650,000 through June of 2024. His possible annual bonuses include up to $40,000 if student-athletes achieve academic marks, up to $55,000 if the department achieves operational and financial stewardship goals, and up to $55,000 more for meeting goals established by the University of Iowa president. The deferred compensation package outlined in BARDA's most recent contract extension signed in August 2019 would pay him $1.4 million. According to his contract, BARDA can be terminated for cause, including a serious or prolonged failure to perform his duties, program violations of NCAA or Big Ten rules, or violation of regent or UI policy involving dishonesty, moral turpitude, or conflict of interest, among other things. If terminated for cause, UI would have to give Barta 30 days' notice and pay him his base wage through the date of termination. If he's let go without cause, UI would have to pay Barta 24 months of his base wage, or $1.3 million, plus a chunk of his deferred compensation. UI head coach Kirk Ferentz made $6.9 million in the 2022 budget year. His son and offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz made $1.1 million that year. UI Athletics in 2022 generated its most ever income at $126.8 million, nearly $10 million over budget. It's expecting even more revenue in the current year, $129 million, including $22.8 million in football income. Lawmakers respond. Lawmakers on Wednesday introduced House Study Bill 229, mandating Iowa's public universities reimburse it for costs associated with settlements tied to athletics. 
The bill, which lawmakers are continuing to pursue even after Wilson's statement, would require reimbursement for any award or judgment tied to conduct or actions of an employee of an athletic department of a public university, and money used to cover the reimbursement could not come from state appropriations. After reading Wilson's statement to lawmakers Thursday in which she committed to reimbursing the state for its portion of the recent $4.2 million settlement, a region's representative noted UI Athletics is self-sustaining and does not receive any tuition revenue or tax revenue. The UI main campus did, however, loan its athletics department $50 million in June 2021 to help with COVID-related losses. As of July 2022, UI Athletics had paid back the campus $3 million. Representative Carter Nordman, Republican of Adel on Thursday, thanked UI President Wilson for committing the reimbursement, but indicated taxpayers never should have been billed for any part. I'm not sure without the pressure of Iowans and some members in the legislature if this would have came about, Nordman said. I do appreciate the university and their self-evaluation and understanding that taxpayers should not be on the hook for $2 million here. Auditor Sand agreed but said Thursday he's delighted that President Wilson listened to the concerns that led to my vote against the Bardas settlement. I am delighted that she listened to the outcry from taxpayers who wanted a real who wanted real accountability. And I would like a copy of that check mailed to this room, 111 in the State Capitol building. Ferentz response. Following news of the settlement, which included non-monetary terms like providing tuition support for the 12 players who sued, offering mental health counseling for a year, sending 10 student athletes to the annual Black Student Athlete Summit and hiring a diversity consultant, Kirk Ferentz issued a statement disparaging the deal. I am greatly disappointed in how this legal matter was resolved, Ferentz said in his statement. The settlement negotiations took place between Plaintiff's Counsel and the Iowa Attorney General's Office, which represents the University of Iowa and the Board of Regents. These discussions took place entirely without the knowledge or consent of the coaches who were named in the lawsuit. In fact, the parties originally named disagree with the decision to settle, fully believing that the case would have been dismissed with prejudice before trial. Ferentz said his program has been unfairly and negatively impacted by these allegations for more than two years. Members of the staff had their character and reputation tarnished by former members of our team who said things, then recanted many statements when questioned under oath. Yeah, tough stuff there. Moving on to... Auditor slams bill limiting state watchdog. Lawmaker says it will protect personal information. This is written by Aaron Murphy of the Journal Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. Limits would be placed on what personal information the state taxpayer's watchdog could demand during an audit under legislation being advanced by state lawmakers. House Senate File 478 would impact the state auditor's ability to conduct investigations in an independent, nonpartisan fashion is a subject of stark disagreement between the current state auditor and the lawmaker who crafted the legislation. Senator Michael Busselot, a Republican from Ankeny, said the legislation was designed to protect the privacy of Iowans' personal information and to clarify questions that were raised during a 2021 Iowa Supreme Court case that pondered the auditor's authority. However, Iowa Auditor Rob Sand, a Democrat, insisted the proposal would severely restrict the office's ability to perform audits. A bipartisan coalition of state auditors and the leader of the national organization that represents state auditors agrees with him. 
Sand said during a Thursday news conference at the Capitol, the proposal would embolden the subjects of state audits to withhold information that is necessary to complete investigations, hampering the office's ability to root out government malfeasance. Sand also warned that if agencies withhold information, the auditor's office may not be able to complete investigations, which would jeopardize federal funding for some state programs. This bill would give veto power to anyone who doesn't want us to look at what they're doing with taxpayer money, Sands said. I'm not pulling your chain about how serious this is. This bill is a big mistake that can have catastrophic impacts for the state's financial situation, as well as allowing waste, fraud, and abuse to be hidden by whoever's conducting it. The Iowa Senate passed the bill earlier this week with only Republican support. It is now eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. What's proposed? Under the proposal, the auditor's office during an audit could not demand 11 types of personal information, including criminal files, law enforcement investigative documents, income tax returns, medical files, public health records, educational records, and any other personal information that an individual would be reasonably expect to uh, be kept private or uh, is unnecessary for the audit. The auditor's office could get that information only if the office proves it is relevant to the audit. The party being investigated agrees to hand over the information, and the information is altered so individuals cannot be identified. Busselot said he wrote the bill to answer questions raised during a 2021 Iowa Supreme Court case involving the auditor's office subpoena of records from the University of Iowa regarding its $1 billion 50-year lease of its utility system. In that case, the court considered the scope of audits and authority of the state auditor's office. The Supreme Court in that case ruled unanimously in the auditor's office favor. This is about protecting privacy. Privacy isn't partisan, Buselot said in a statement. The bill answers questions raised by the Iowa Supreme Court in 2021. When an audit begins, what information is confidential and how disputes are resolved. The bill ensures the auditor has access to relevant information in an audit, but confidential personal information is protected. Buselot said he presented the proposed legislation to the state treasurer and the Department of Management, both led by Republicans, and to the Iowa Board of Regents and to private accounting firms. I have full faith this legislation complies with government auditing standards, which Buselot notes are referenced in the bill while protecting Iowans' privacy, he said. Pushback, our final section here. Sand and the other state auditors, both Democrat and Republican, disagree and say the proposal would hinder the auditor's office's ability to conduct audits. A letter from the National Auditors Association, written by the organization's president and signed by 26 other state auditors, says the proposal would negatively impact the auditor's ability to independently and sufficiently perform his audit work. State auditors should have unfettered access to confidential records to ensure that state agencies are following their policies and procedures and state and federal law, the letter stated. This is also necessary to ensure that we prevent waste, fraud, and abuse of state programs and funds. State auditors also have the immense responsibility to guard against disclosure of any confidential information. It is a responsibility we take seriously. In our brief section here on page 2, of this reading of the Sioux City Journal, bank robbery accomplice sent back to prison, Dateline Sioux City, Iowa. A Sioux City woman convicted for her role in a bank robbery is headed back to federal prison for leaving town while on supervised release from prison. 
U.S. District Judge Leonard Strand on Wednesday sentenced Karen Merrick, age 39, to 15 months in prison and one count of escape from custody and added the sentence on to the 15 months remaining on her original sentence. Merrick was sentenced in U.S. District Court in Sioux City in January of 2020 to 30 months in prison on one count of accessory after the fact for driving the getaway vehicle in a December 2018 robbery of Iowa State Bank in Lamars, Iowa. She has been released from prison in January 2021 and was serving a two-year term of supervised release. On August 2nd, Merrick signed out of Dismas Charities Residential Reentry Center in Sioux City to go to work and did not return. She was arrested a month later in Minneapolis. Merrick drove Philip White from the scene of the bank robbery in a U-Haul van and led law enforcement officers on a 20-mile chase into rural Plymouth County before officers were able to flatten the van's tires and bring it to a stop. White was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Edge of Illusion Magician coming to Anthem. Groundbreaking magician Riza will bring his Edge of Illusion act to Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's Anthem on September 22nd. Don't expect rabbits out of hats. Riza has taken the art of illusion to a new level, delivering his rock concert style of magic show to audiences around the globe. Tickets will go on sale at 10 a.m. Friday at HardRockCasinoSuCity.com or at the hotel's rock shop. All Anthem events are for audiences 21 and older, age 21 and older. TV's Hercules to headline Sioux City nonprofit fundraiser. Dateline Sioux City, Iowa. Actor Kevin Sorbo, best known for his 1990s television series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, is coming to Sioux City to support a local nonprofit organization. Sorbo will speak at an event hosted by Equipping the Persecuted at Hilton Garden Inn, 1132 Larson Park Boulevard at 6 p.m. on March 18th. That'd be uh, not tomorrow, but this uh, Saturday a week from tomorrow. The Sioux City-based Equipping the Persecuted supports and assists individuals who have suffered from political and economic instability in Nigeria. Tickets are available at equippingthepersecuted.networkforgood.com backslash events backslash 53317-2nd-annual-equipping-the-persecuted-fundraising-gala, period. Okay. Well, we're at the halfway point here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal, and that means it's time to tell you that you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of our audience. This is the reading and broadcast of the Sioux City Journal newspaper for Friday, March 10th. I'm your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Hauk. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And if the phone works, you can also call our hotline 1-877-404-4747. 1-877-404-4747. Toll free from across the state of Iowa. That is if the phone system's working, which if you've tried to call in and it's not, well, that's just VOIP for you. No fun. We take a check now of the obituaries here on this Friday edition. They start on page C3. Our first is for R.L. J. Scottvold, Del Rapids, South Dakota, formerly of Lamars, Iowa, 
Age 95, died Wednesday, March 8, 2023. Arrangements are with the Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. From there, we go to Darlene Elsie Wells Rankin of Sun City West, Arizona, formerly of Lamars, Iowa. Age 90, died Wednesday, March 1, 2023. Arrangements are with the Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Next is Lyle Ludke of Hartley, Iowa. Age 89, died Wednesday, March 8, 2023. Services are March 13th at 11 a.m. at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Hartley. Burial will be in the Pleasant View Cemetery in Hartley. Visitation, March 13th, next week from 10 to 11 a.m. at the church. 13th is uh, on Monday, actually, at the church. Arrangements are with the Hartley Funeral Home. So cemetery and funeral at the same time on Monday, not at the same time, but, you know, visitation starts at 10, funerals at 11 for Lyle Ludke at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hartley. All right. Um, Bernard Lee Berrigan, formerly of Sioux City, age 92, died Saturday, March 4th, 2023. Services are March 25th at 10.30 a.m. at All Saints Catholic Church, located at 8939 Montgomery Road in Cincinnati, Ohio. Burial is following the services at Gate of Heaven Cemetery. Located at 11,000 Montgomery Road in Cincinnati. Visitation is March 25th from 9 to 10 a.m. at the Gilligan Funeral Home located at 8225 Montgomery Road in Cincinnati. From there we go to Philip P. Walding of Sioux City, age 68. Died Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. Services are March 11th at 10.30 a.m. Uh, at Nativity. Burial is at a later date at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be March 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. So that's today at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel, or right after the conclusion of this broadcast, actually. Patricia E. Arnold is next of Sioux City, age 86, died Wednesday, March 8th. Arrangements are pending with the Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. From there we go to the full obituary of Gertrude Wojcik, last name spelled W-O-J-C-I-K. Gertrude, or Gertrude Wojcik, there's different spellings of her name here uh, on the title and uh, on the uh, actual obituary, so if it's wrong either way, my apologies. Gertrude Wojcik, age 94, passed away peacefully early Monday morning, March 6, 2023, at Westwood Care Center in Sioux City. Services will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home with Father Michael Keating officiating. Burial will follow at St. Michael's Cemetery in rural South Sioux City. Visitation with family present will begin at 10.30 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Online condolences may be offered at www.meyerbroschapels.com. Gertrude was born in Roding, Germany, and had many tales about enduring World War II. In 1949, Gertrude, her mother, father, and brother, Joe, followed sister Anna to Harrington, Nebraska from Germany. Gertrude became a U.S. citizen in 1954. Gertrude was married to Zygmunt Wojcik on February 9, 1957, and enjoyed 24 years with him prior to his passing. While married, they lived in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa and built their forever home in South Sioux City, where Gertrude continued to live until last year. 
A strong woman, she worked at Durapak and later as a greeter at the local Walmart until she was 83 years old. Gertrude is survived by her sister, Anna Schaefer, brother Joe Riger, married to Linda, sons Tony Vehar, married to Amy of Trinity, Texas, Mike Wojcik, married to Pat of South Sioux City, and John Wojcik, married to Vilma of Wesley Chapel, Florida. Eleven cherished grandchildren and step-grandchildren, Christine Vehar, Mark Vehar, John Vehar, Lauren Vehar, Anthony Vehar, Brent Wojcik, Lisa Wojcik-Wanger, Stephanie Wojcik, and Jason Wojcik, Sergio Villanueva, and Sherry Villanueva-Preston, and five great-grandchildren. Gertrude was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Zygmunt, and her parents. And that concludes our obituary reading for this Friday, March the 10th. Andy here with you, and we are going to be moving on now to some opinions before we get into the sports section. And I think, actually, we're just going to do one opinion because there's a lot of sports in here. So I don't want you all to have to miss out on that for some probably angry opinion that someone wrote. This is about the clock clash. So um, I'll read you the opposition opinion because uh, that's what everybody thinks anyway. It's written by William Shugart II. Springing forward is a waste of time. He writes, most people hate springing forward and falling back every year. Moving clocks ahead one hour in March only to return them to their previous settings in November wastes time literally. No adjustments to clocks change the length of the day, which is determined by latitude, distance from the equator, and season of the year. Daylight savings time, which kicks in this year at 2 a.m. Sunday, simply shifts an hour of sunshine from the beginning of the day to its end. Saving an hour of sunlight requires losing an hour of sleep in the spring, reclaimed in the fall when standard time observed for a mere four months resumes. Daylight savings time has been one of the most irri many irritations of modern life since at least World War II. It became a permanent irritant during the oil crisis of the early 1970s when President Richard Nixon signed legislation mandating that clocks be moved forward one hour on an early March Sunday morning to save energy. The policy's stated justification was that by providing an extra hour of sunlight at day's end, People returning home from work wouldn't have to turn on their lights as soon and hence consume less electricity than they would otherwise. The energy-saving argument has been debunked many times since then by careful studies of energy consumption. One of the reasons it doesn't pan out is because electricity provides comfort as well as lighting. Even if a family doesn't turn on the lights until 8.30 or 9 p.m. during the summer, people still want to cool off after returning home from work. And for most Americans, a dip in the backyard pool isn't an option. With millions now working from home, the energy-saving rationale makes even less sense. Though computers, cell phones, and many other digital devices adjust to the time changes automatically, most analog watches and clocks still must be reset manually. That's an inconvenience, but additional costs are incurred as well. First, changing time messes up our internal body clocks, in effect causing people to experience the equivalent of jet lag without traveling to another time zone. Research shows that the shock to the, our circadian rhythms, the physical, mental, and behavioral changes that occur naturally in response to light and darkness, cause sleepiness and inattention. 
which contribute to lower productivity on the job and spikes in heart attacks, workplace injuries, and auto accidents in the days immediately after the time changes. Implicit costs are also incurred whenever clock time diverges from sun time. According to my back-of-the-envelope calculation, we lose nearly $1.7 billion of valuable time to the annual spring-forward fallback exercise. The loss is based on what economists call opportunity costs, the value of time that could be better spent on more productive or enjoyable activities. Economists typically base opportunity cost estimates on individual wage rates. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated hourly average earnings in January 2023 at about $33. Assuming it takes everyone about 10 minutes or 0.16 of an hour, a 16th of an hour, to change their clocks and watches, the opportunity cost amounts to about $5.28 per person. Just counting the 158 million Americans who currently hold some job, the one-time opportunity cost for the country is more than $834 million each time we change our clocks, or just under $1.7 billion a year. The National Conference of State Legislatures reports that 18 states already have approved legislation making daylight saving time the year-round norm. Several other states are considering such legislation. But the states can't move forward because permanent daylight saving time is inconsistent with the Uniform Time Act of 1966. While it's permissible to adopt standard time year-round, as Arizona, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and U.S. Pacific Territories have done, extending daylight saving time beyond the current eight months requires an act of Congress. Given both the nuisance factor and the significant cost imposed on us, by being forced to change our clocks twice a year, it's hard to understand why Congress hasn't done away with the irrational time change regime. The log logical solution, therefore, is year-round standard time, which individual states remain free to adopt on their own. William Shugart II is a research director for the Independent Institute and the J. Fish Smith Professor in Public Choice at Utah State University's Huntsman School of Business. He wrote this for InsideSources.com. Moving on to the sports section now, second half surge fuels Wolfpack. Van Regemorters lead Western Christian past Roland Story. That's written by Dave Driesen, Dateline Des Moines. Brothers Caden and Tate Van Regemorter combined for 41 points as Western Christian race past Roland Story in the second half to claim a 79-61 victory in an Iowa Class 2A semifinal game Thursday afternoon. The Wolfpack, who last won the state championship in 2021, will face top-seeded Central Lion in an all-Northwest Iowa final at 3 p.m. Friday. Caden Van Regenmorter, a 6'3-inch sophomore, scored his game-high 23 points on 7 of 10 shooting from the field and 9 of 11 from the free-throw line, while his older brother Tate, a 6'5 senior, tallied 18 points, hitting 7 of his 15 shots from the field, including 4 of 8 from 3-point range. That's pretty cool, Caden said after learning from a journal reporter that he and his brother combined for over half of Western Christian's point totals. Karsten Moray added 18 points for the Wolfpack, who outscored the Norsemen 45-29 in the second half after leading them by just two points at the intermission. 
Western Christian head coach Derek Kieser said the Wolfpack winning the battle of the boards 37-34 keyed the victory. Roland Story is the best rebounding team in the state, Kieser said. We said for us to have a chance in this game, we were going to have to rebound them. We're not a very big team, but we are pretty tough, a pretty tough team mentally. We were down at the half, but the guys never dropped their heads. They just fought. We constantly tell them we've got to fight, fight, fight. And by the end of the fourth quarter, we hope we're still in the game. The two teams battled in the first half, which featured nine lead changes and seven ties. After a moray basket cut Roland Story's lead to 13-12, to a traditional three-point play jump shot by Jonathan Wilkinson gave the Norsemen a 16-14 to advantage at the end. The lead seesawed back and forth as the second period began. Western took a 23-21 lead on a Caden Van Regenmorter jumper but two straight baskets by Wilkinson put the Norsemen in front, 25-23. After a Moray fast break layup tied the score 25, Caden Van Regenmorter hit two free throws to put the Wolfpack up 27-25 with two minutes and 53 seconds left in the half. Less than three minutes later, Moray's layup gave Western a 34-30 lead. Founded on a three-point shot with a second to play, Wilkinson made two of his three free throws to close the gap to 34-32 to at halftime. Tate Van Tegenmorter said his team came out with a renewed sense of purpose in the second half. We knew we had to play harder, the seniors said. They were outworking us. They're a very good team. We knew we had to dig in. A fast break layup by Caden Van Tegenmorter gave the Wolfpack a nine-point lead, its largest of the game, with two minutes and 11 seconds left in the third quarter. A Wilkinson jumper cut the deficit to 54-48, entering the final stanza. Wilkinson, the Norseman's leading scorer, went to the bench after picking up his fourth foul with just a minute gone in the fourth period. The Wolfpack went on a 16-4 run over the next five and a half minutes, taking a 20-point lead, 74-54, on a Tyler Mantle fast-break layup with 2 minutes and 36 seconds to play. At the start of the fourth quarter, it's a six-point game, Roland Story head coach Darren Berggren said. We had a great possession. They hit a contested about 15-17 to 17 footer right at the end of the shot clock. That was a bit deflating. And then Wilkinson got his fourth foul. They just strung together possessions where they got stops and got scores and their length. We was making us uh, maybe pull up a step farther out than we were wanting to or used. Uh, credit them, they're great on both ends of the floor, especially that fourth quarter. Tate Van Tegenmorter's three-pointer with a minute 27 gave Western its largest lead of the game, 79-57, icing the win with a minute and 27 seconds left. We kept playing hard, we kept playing together, Caden Van Tegenmorter said. When we play defense and rebound, we're really tough to beat. We get out in transition and run. All right, another sports news. Another Northwest Iowa 2A final, Central Lion and Western Christian to meet in title game. For the third straight year, two boys basketball teams from Northwest Iowa will battle for the Iowa Class 2A championship. 
Central Lion and Western Christian advanced to Friday's title game with a semifinal win Thursday at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Though the high schools in Rock Rapids and Hull are less than 30 miles apart, the Lions and Wolfpack did not face each other in the regular season. The last time the two squads met was in the 2021 districts, with Western prevailing 59-42. Central Lions senior Andrew Austin laughed when reminded of that game, recalling he fouled out with about two minutes to play as a sophomore. The Wolfpack won the Class 2A title that season, beating rival Boynton Hall in the state finals 56-50. Last year, Central Lion advanced to the title game, losing to rival Rock Valley 74-51. Northwest Iowa has some of the best basketball in the state, Central Lion junior Reese Vanderzee said. That's been proven in the Class 2A championships the last two years. Central Lion entered this year's state tournament with just one loss and the number one seed, while the Wolfpack earned the third seed with only three losses. We know Central Lion is an unbelievable team. Coach Gelleman always has his team well prepared. Western Christian head coach Derek Kaiser said they're so athletic. They're the number one team in the state for a reason. We're just excited to make the championship game and see what happens. Several of the players on both teams know each other through off-season leagues and competitions. Western Christian senior Tate Van Regenmorter said he played senior Zach Lutmer, who Van Regenmorter played with on a team last summer. He's an awesome dude. Awesome to be around. That might have been supposed to say dude. Uh, there's been some typos in this paper, everyone, so bear with me here. Van Regenmorter said of Lutmer, who is a play who will play football for the Iowa Hawkeyes next season. Next up, surviving an upset bid. Central Lion holds on as last second shot misses Mark. This is written by Dave, Dave Driesen, Dateline Des Moines. Reese Vanderzee scored nine of his 19 points in the decision fourth quarter as top-seeded Central Lion held off Pella Christian 56-55 in the Class 2A semifinals game Thursday morning. Tyson DeVries missed a three-point shot as the horn sound that would have given the Eagles the upset win. Andrew Austin scored a team-high 20 points for the Lions, who rallied from a five-point halftime deficit to reach the title game for the second straight year. Central Lion will face Western Christian in an all-Northwest Iowa championship game at 3 p.m. Friday in Des Moines. Central Lion, which came into the game averaging 77.8 points per contest, struggled in the first half against Pella Christian's 2-3 zone. The Lions were just 9 of 23 from the field and 1 of 8 from beyond the arch in the opening 16 minutes. Our guys didn't play like we normally do early on, Central Lion head coach Ben Gerlman said. A lot of that was Pella Christian. A lot of that was how they tried to guard us. We didn't have the urgency of getting the ball where we like to get it. I think our kids felt confident the whole time. As a result, we ended up hanging in there and hanging around and gutted it out in the end. Pella Christian took a 10-6 lead on a DeVries jumper with 2 minutes and 56 seconds left in the first quarter. Central Lion then went on a 5-0 run on Zach Lutmer's basket and a Josh Elbert three-pointer to regain the lead 11-10 at the end of the period. Another Lutmer jumper put the Lions up 3 to start the second quarter, but the Eagles reclaimed the lead of... 15-13 with 6 minutes and 42 seconds left on a Dane Gettings tip in the Josh Voss three-pointer. 
Pella Christian extended its lead to a 26-21 at halftime on a Dane Geetings drive-in layup on a give-and-go as the clock ticked down. After Vanderzee scored the first basket of the half to make it 26-23, Geetings responded with a three-pointer to put the Eagles back up 29-23. The Lions went, then went on a 13-2 run to take a 36-31 lead. The run was highlighted by an Austin Dunk and an Ephraim Hofert three-pointer. Pella Christian's Aiden Stoles Trey cut the margin to 38-34 with 3 minutes and 13 seconds left in the third. The Eagles outscoring the Lions 11-0 to close the period, taking a 42-38 lead heading into the final stanza. Consecutive baskets by Vanderzee, Austin, and Lutmer to start the fourth quarter quickly gave the Lions a 44-42 lead. A DeVries three-pointer put the Eagles back in front 45-44. Hoford answered with a tray to give the Lions a 47-45 lead with 5 minutes and 46 seconds left. A Vanderzee jumper put the Lions back up by 4, 51-47 with 4 minutes and 16 seconds left. After Geetings hit with a three to cut the margin to one, Vanderzee responded with a try of his own to make the score 54-50. Lions took a 54-50 lead on back-to-back baskets by Vanderzee, a jumper in the lane, and a three-pointer with four minutes and 16 seconds remaining. I knew my team needed me, Vanderzee, a junior guard, guard said. I'm a competitor. I'll fight to the end. I'm just ready to play whenever the game gets tough. After a Voss jumper in the lane cut the lead to 54-52, Lutmer, a University of Iowa football recruit, hit a shot in the lane to again increase the advantage to 4, 56-52, with 1 minute and 40 seconds left. A basket came after Austin grabbed an offensive rebound. It was the latest in a series of second-chance points for the Lions, who won the battle of the boards 20-10. After both teams missed shots on the next two possessions, Geetings hit a three to pull the Eagles to within 56-55 with 17.3 seconds left. Pella Christian then founded three straight times with the last putting the Lions into the 1-1-1. Vanderzee missed his first free throw, but Austin grabbed the rebound and was fouled. After Austin, his 1-1... The Eagles raced the ball up the court, but were fouled by the Lions before they could get a shot off. In the frantic final seconds, the Eagles found Van Vries open in the right corner. His shot from behind the arch bounced off the rim as the horn sounded. Vander Zee, who finished 8-14 from the floor, said the team responded in the final 16 minutes after struggling in the first half. We just sped up the game up more. Got some turnovers. That really helped, Vanderzee said. Our shots started falling. We took good shots. We got the ball inside and played our type of game, and our experience paid off. Well, that's the reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, everyone. I think we've uh, about hit our time mark. If I'm a little off here, well, that's just me. But we don't really have time for any more stories, so we'll just have to fill it with some tunes. Yes, some musical interlude. Until we hit the top of the hour here at 5 o'clock. Thank you so much for listening to Iris and this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, March the 10th. This is your reader filling in. 
My name is Andrew Haup. Thank you so much for listening today and sharing your time with IRS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a great afternoon and a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening straight ahead.